Well, this morning is the first Sunday of the month. Welcome to October. And this is the Sunday that we participate in communion together. And when we, when we practice communion as a, as a church family, we always like to slow down and, and teach from the scriptures on this uh, very important historic Christian sacrament. Uh, we never want to rush through it. We always try to slow down. However, what I want to do this morning is as we're in between teaching series as a church, I want to uh, slow down uh, more, than, more than normal and, and really take the entire message as a church family to talk about communion, to talk about what it's all about. And so what I'm going to do that's a little different than what we normally do is rather than walking straight through a chunk of text, we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. And so if you're into taking notes, you can certainly do that. And maybe you can even use this for some personal study throughout the course of the week. And what we're going to do is kind of get a bit of an overview, very sweeping overview of uh, the Bible to give us a framework for uh, a proper understanding of this thing that we call communion. Now, anyone in here like to eat? I know, I know you like to eat. Now, uh, Paul says, "Don't come hungry for communion." So that's not what I'm. That's not what I'm talking about. But uh, I, I think it's safe to say we like to eat. Some of us more than than others. And, and for me, thinking back through my life, I have some some you know historic meals that you know meals that that mean a lot. To me, meals that I'll just I'll never forget for various reasons, and I'm sure you do as well. I have a lot of great uh, memories from cafeteria lunches as, as a as a kid going to school, and I remember high school. I had this posse of people. We'd sit around our cafeteria table together and and hang out. Just lots of great memories from from that. I even have photos of that. But there was this one cafeteria table lunch that I uh, really remember. I was sitting with my best friend. We sat beside each other. Uh, every day through elementary school, and he, for whatever reason, the timing was such on this particular day that he made a comment that was so hysterical, and the timing, my mouth was full of chocolate milk, and I just remember right when he said it, I couldn't hold it, and I just spewed chocolate milk all over this poor guy's face, and throughout the rest of our friendship, we just kept looking back on that day, and, and that, was a, that was a funny, you know, historical meal for us as, as friends. Uh, I'll never also forget my first date with my wife, Becky. Went to this place called Shakers, and uh, just a historic meal for me. I remember that she ate way more than me and finished faster than me, even though she's half the size of me, and uh, I think she was slightly embarrassed by that, and I was a smooth operator, let me just say. If you could be a fly on the wall, you'd say, wow, that guy is he's, he's smooth, and if you want some pointers, I'm here for you. i also never forget our, our wedding reception. Big, big meal. We had a lot of family and, and friends there. I'll never forget the decor. I'll never forget the jazz band and the bad dancing, primarily me. I'll never forget the food that I didn't touch because I was so nervous. And I'll never forget my date and what she looked like on that particular night. Our wedding reception was awesome. I just, I totally remember that. Another meal for me I'll never forget is when we found out that we were having our first baby. And so we, for this meal, decided we're going to go to our favorite seafood restaurant in Worcester. And I uh, went to this restaurant, and we were just telling everybody that would listen, we're having a baby, we're having a baby, What's it? we're having a baby. We were so excited. We even told this, this booth of guys beside us that we were, we're having a baby. And, like, oh, okay. and, and I, remember, I remember looking at these guys, and it was a, a, a round booth, and it looked like they kind of owned that booth. You know, their name wasn't on it, but you could just tell, like, this is our spot. And uh, downtown Worcester, and... They were all Italian guys, and they, you know, like three generations. There's one short, older guy with gray hair and just rough, and everybody would, you know, just like deep, raspy voice. It seemed like everybody was leaning in to, to listen. We just kind of, you know, kept looking over, and you know, we had some serious suspicions that that guy was the Godfather, and they were the family, you know, and and. <laughs> 
And then at the very end, they, they took off. And then at the very end, we got our check and, and the waitress says, oh, it's all, just giving it to you, but it's all taken care of. These guys took care of it. The mobsters, right? I mean, I don't know if that was dirty. <laughs> that, was a, that was a big meal for us. And we remember how special that was for us and got a free meal and we splurged more than normal. And then look how, look how that worked out. That was, that was cool. I'll also never forget our, our, first, our, our first time we sat together uh, for dinner, my wife and I, to talk about doing this, about moving into the city, selling our house, and, and starting a church. We were at this restaurant called Via. And I just remember the, the, the excitement and the fear and the, just, the, just the unknown and, and talking about that together. For us, we just recall that meal uh, a, a lot. For us as a church family, I'll never forget our one-year anniversary right in here where, uh, you know, 75 or so of us got together and, and ate had a potluck dinner and just celebrated and shared testimonies and and we're just praising God for what he had done over the course of our first year as a church. These are just for me historic meals in in my life and I imagine that you will all have some historic meals in in your life as well and in the Bible there are some historic meals that help for us shape our understanding of communion, meals that that thread salvation history or, or biblical history. The, the Bible is the history of God interacting with his people and the salvation that he brings about for us. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to review uh, five meals. And, and before we do that, let, let's think about the significance of meals together if we can. Um, and, and by way of preface, let me say this, that whenever I, I'm talking about a meal here, I'm talking about a, a shared Meal, not, not a meal eaten alone. Some of you have to do that from time to time if you're on a business trip or you go out to eat and you're eating by yourself for whatever reason. It's just kind of a bummer, you know? We're talking about a, a shared meal here uh, where, where people get together and eat together. And, and, and so think about meals with me, if, if you would, for just a minute. Meals are often occasions for celebration, right? So people get together and, and celebrate much like a wedding reception where you're celebrating the, the marriage of, of two people, Meals are often uh, an occasion for uh, remembrance, like a memorial service when somebody passes or you're after a funeral and you get together and you have a meal or a potluck and everybody just kind of shares stories about the person or the friend or the family member who, who passed. Uh, meals are often an occasion for fellowship uh, where uh, people get together around a common interest. You know, fellowship has become such a Christian word, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, but generally what it means is, is gathering together around a, a common interest. And so you might join a fellowship and be a fellow, right? And so fellowship is around a, a common interest. And for us as Christians, our common interest is that we, we share the faith of Christ and we have his Holy Spirit in, inside of us. And so uh, Christians, as we see through the Bible, get together often for meals together and break bread together. And, and so as you commune together, you're communing with one commonality, and that is Jesus and his spirit inside of you. Also, meals are an occasion for handling business. Some of you are, are salespeople, and, and many business people will, will go and have meals, and then at the end of the month, they'll go and they'll, they'll work out their expense report, totaling up receipts of meals and coffees with clients and, and potential sales contacts. They're, they're doing business over a meal. Meals are often also occasions to just get to know somebody. Somebody said, hey, you just want to go out for, for, for lunch or for coffee and just get to know somebody over, uh, over a meal. 
meals are also an opportunity to show hospitality. And some of you love to do that. That's, that's a gift of yours, a spiritual gift of yours, is you love to show hospitality. And the one who prepares the food for whoever's coming over and the table is saying to their guests that I care for you, I want to meet your needs, and I welcome you. And, and so that's hospitality. Meals are also just an occasion for people to connect and for families to connect. I, I just love the end of the day when I get to come home, and it's not every day, but it's many days of our, our week. I come home, and you open the door, and you just smell it. You just, oh, man, yes. And you walk in, and my family gets to sit down and, and have a meal together and talk about our days and catch up, and I just love, I love that. And I'm sure we could think of other occasions where we get together and have a meal and, and what significance those meals might mean. But the, the point here is that shared meals have a, have a very special place in, in, in all cultures, in all history. And so with this understanding, let's, let's look at salvation history. Let's look at biblical history and get a framework of, of our communion understanding from some five, five really important meals. And so let's start from the beginning. And the first one here, all the way to the very beginning of your Bible, meal number one is, is we'll call this the meal of forbidden fruit, right? The, the forbidden fruit meal. Think back to, to Genesis chapter 3. What happened on this particular occasion with God's most special creation, mankind? Adam and Eve created by God to, to know God, to walk with God, to commune with God, to live in great unity with God, to enjoy God, to worship Him forever. They had this beautiful communion with God, but it was short-lived. Why? Because He said, you can do whatever you want. You can live and, and breathe and enjoy me, but there's one tree. Do not touch this tree. But they touched the tree, right? Genesis chapter two seventeen. God says, here's one request, but they ate. They were tempted by the serpent, by Satan, and they ate. It was a meal without God. Think about that. It was a meal without God, and it was a meal with who? It was a meal with Satan, with the serpent. It was one of those meals of fellowship, and the common interest here is the desire to be God. And the common interest here is insubordination to God. It's also one of those business meals where they're shaking hands with the devil, right? They're making a deal with the devil. They've turned their back on their previous partner and they have joined a new team. But they were deceived, weren't they? It was a crooked deal. Genesis chapter 3 then goes on to tell us about the curses that come from separating themselves from God and dealing with the devil. But the good news is that God and his tremendous grace and what's known as the Proto-Evangelion right there in, in the midst of the curses in Genesis chapter 3 gives us a promise that he is going to restore all things. And his tremendous grace, God pursues mankind. What did they deserve? They deserved death and death immediately. Genesis chapter two seventeen. what does it say? God says, the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. The when? The day you shall surely die. But did they die that day? They began to die. They died spiritually. They died in their souls, but they still had breath. They didn't immediately get what they deserved. And grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. 
And every single breath that we breathe in is a gift of God's grace because we've turned our backs on the one who breathed into us the breath of life. And so if you separate yourself from breath equals death, but God in his grace continues to give us breath. First meal is forbidden fruit, which now brings us towards the the second meal, the, the Passover meal. God's redemptive plan for his people continues to unfold beyond Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 12, God enters into this covenant new relationship with Abraham. He tells Abraham or Abram at the time that he will bless all the families of the earth from him, that he will make a great nation from him. That nation is Israel, right? And through Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed because from Israel as a kingdom of priests, they will bring forth the Messiah. From Israel will come Jesus. Jesus was a Hebrew, and God has called a people to himself. He has saved them from the death that they gave to themselves because they entered into a deal with the devil. These are the historical Hebrews, the Jewish people, the Israelites. And it's carried over in application to us as Christians today. We are those people called of God. We are the people who place faith in him to, to save us. We follow him. And if you know anything about the story of the Passover in Exodus chapter 11 and chapter 12, God's people had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years as they've been wandering and get close and, and, and get removed. And they've been slaves in Egypt for, for 400 years. But God determined that under the leadership of Moses, he was going to free them from the slavery, from the captivity. So Moses kept saying, Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no, no, no. And so plague after plague after plague, God gave to the people of, of Egypt. And then the final plague was that the firstborn of each family would die. Because Pharaoh continued to refuse. And so in Exodus chapter 12, God said, here's what I'm going to do to save my people, Israel, in the midst of the plague. What I'm going to do is I'm calling you, people of God, to take a young, healthy lamb without defect, and I want you to sacrifice. And in making this unique, strange commandment, what he is saying is he's saying, I'm preparing you for what's to come with Jesus. And now for us, in the fullness of time, we really start to get an understanding of that picture. John the baptizer says when he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the lamb of God, a person, not a lamb, the lamb of God, a person who takes away the sins of the world. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says that blood symbolizes life. And so God says to the people of Israel, he says, I want you to to sacrifice a lamb per family and take the blood and I want you to put it over the post of your door, your, your, your door frame. And in doing this and following me in this strange commandment, what you're doing is you're saying, I, I'm Okay, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust God here, so that when God's wrath passes over the people, it's not going to fall on you. It's going to pass over you because you've trusted God by painting your doorpost with the blood of the Lamb. And today, our salvation is also found in the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His name is Jesus. See how beautifully symbolic it is. And when you put these things up against the Old Testament 
symbolism. You, it, it is just astounding. It's impossible for Jesus to fake the parallels. It's impossible if Jesus was a fraud to even try to, to fake this. And so the angel of death passes over the people of Israel and takes the firstborn of the Egyptians, and they are now fearful of their lives, and they let the people go. And Israel is freed from the bondage in Egypt. And likewise, we can be free, can't we, from the bondage to Satan, sin, and death if we would trust in the death of the Lord Jesus and his blood that, that covers us. Exodus chapter twelve fourteen says of the Passover, it says, this day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast for the Lord. And so they continually, year after year after year, kept this as a feast, a memorial, a festival to remember what happened on that particular day until Jesus eats it the night before his death. And that brings us to meal number three, and that is the Last Supper. The, the Last Supper. Uh, for this one, I do want to flip together to Matthew chapter 26, if you will. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26. We have Bibles provided in the seats here for you. Uh, we'll be in Matthew 26. This is the Last Supper. If you're familiar with Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, right? This is what we get that from. Jesus is God. He's entered into human history. He's living as one of us. He's living perfectly the life we can never live, undeserving of death. We deserve death because of our sin. Yet his entire life on this earth is working towards the cross. While he's here, he's a good Jewish man visiting the temple, attending synagogue, observing the annual Passover meal, along with all the other feasts. And now we are at the last necessary Passover meal. And Jesus is observing it with his disciples. Let's read Matthew 26, 26. It says, Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So here Jesus is in the middle of this feast with his disciples and it says that as they are eating he he stuns them as they're about to eat the the traditional unleavened bread he makes this major adjustment to this 1000 year tradition and he says this bread is my body this is my body and the very next day his body would be beaten wouldn't it beyond recognition as he hangs on this cross, payment for our sin. And it's, and it's interesting that historically Jews use matzah bread as uh, the Passover bread. And this bread is uh, unleavened bread as commanded in Exodus chapter 13. But matzah bread is also, if you notice when we have some here, is also striped and it's also pierced. And listen to Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5. It says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Love the historical parallels here. Now, as New Covenant Christians, we're not commanded or required to use matzah bread or unleavened bread. 
Um, in our observance of the, the, the Lord's Supper, some do, and occasionally we will, and today we will just because of the, the picture for us. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 26, and we, we see that he, he lifts the cup, and what does he say? He says, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant. We're entering into a new covenant now. And as you look at all the gospel accounts of the Lord's Supper, we see that uh, when it's time to drink the traditional third cup of the Passover meal, the, the cup of redemption, Jesus says, this wine represents my blood. So like the bread represents my body, he says this wine represents my blood, my blood a, a new covenant, my blood that's going to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And then, as we see here, when it comes time to drink the traditional fourth cup of the Passover, Jesus doesn't drink it, does it? He says he doesn't drink it. He says, I will drink it with you when my kingdom comes. And so what that does is he leaves you and he leaves myself waiting for his return when the kingdom is fully instated, when we will drink it with him when the kingdom comes. And so that's the last necessary Passover meal. We wait in anticipation for the time when we get to eat and drink again with Christ. First Corinthians chapter 11 records that, that Jesus commands them to continue their tradition of the meal, but now we do it in remembrance of who? In remembrance of him and me, he says. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And then they sing a hymn. And then they go to the Mount of Olives where Jesus will be captured for his crucifixion. It was the last necessary Passover meal. Lord's, Lord's last supper. Meal number four brings us now to the Lord's Supper, which we will together as a family partake of in a few moments. A little over seven weeks after the last supper with Jesus, we see Christians partaking of this Lord's Supper. Now, I want to talk about the name, the Lord's Supper, for a minute, if we can. This, this practice was never really given a very specific name in the Scriptures. It's just referred to as breaking bread. As you read it in the Scriptures, it's just referred to as breaking bread. And historically, we've called it the Lord's Table because of the example that the Lord himself set for us at the Last Supper before his crucifixion. It's also been referred to as the Eucharist from the word Eucharistia, uh, the Greek word for thanksgiving, because we're expressing our thanksgiving to God for what he has done for us. It's also been called communion because of the communion and the fellowship that we have with God and with each other because of the work of Jesus. And I can tell you this, you can call it whatever you want to call it uh, from these options, I suppose. I would just suggest maybe use it uh, when appropriate. So when you're thankful, call it Eucharist. When you're thinking upon the example of the Lord, call it the Lord's table. When you're uh, grateful for the communion that you have with Christ and with each other around the proverbial table, call it communion. You can call it whatever, whatever you want. Nonetheless, we see in the Bible that it's practiced with some frequency. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, we read this from time to time on the first Sunday of the month. He quotes Jesus and Jesus is saying, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. So however often you do it, we don't know how often uh, it was done necessarily from the scriptures. Uh, historically, some have done it every week, while others have said, well, that seems to cause it to be just rote and ritual and, and lack 
uh, lack meaning because we're just so familiar with it. And so some do it monthly or even quarterly. For this season of the life of our church, we've opted to do it quarterly so that, or, or monthly so that it will be uh, just more uh, special to us. We could really focus in as, as a church family. Uh, but biblically, we know it was done often, frequent. We don't quite know how frequent. Now, listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The very first summary of the early church, and here's what it says. It says, and they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. And so they were devoted. means they did this regularly together. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So they had the apostles at that point in the early church in Jerusalem right there in front of them teaching them. And so the word of God coming through the mouth of the apostles. We don't have the apostles any longer. So now we have the apostles' teachings recorded for us here in the scriptures. And so you don't come in on Sundays to hear Josh or Ryan's thoughts on life. If you ever find yourself in a church that it's just the pastor's thoughts on life, get out of there. You're looking for the apostles' teaching, the teaching of the scriptures being taught. So this is not my opinion. This is God's word. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were also devoted to, to fellowship, right? To having meaningful relationships with each other around their common interest of Jesus. They were also devoted to, to prayer. They were a praying people. They were devoting themselves to prayer, right? We should be praying together. Initiate this often. Somebody's got to step up and say, let's pray. After church, when somebody has troubles, don't just say, I'll pray for you. Say, can we pray right now? Put your arm around them and pray, right? And then to the breaking of bread, which includes both this, which is communion, but also as you get into Acts chapter 2 a little further, you go down into verse 46, it tells us they're breaking bread in their homes, Listen, it says, and day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So do you, do you hear that? Their communion extended into their homes. So these tables here should not just be the extent of our communion. Our communion extends into our home. Our communion here is, is bread and wine. And then our connection groups from time to time, we may uh, partake of communion in, in that venue, but it shouldn't be the extent of our communion that we can go home and continue our communion by having meals with each other, and our meals become an extension of the communion we have here. Not that we're saying we're having wine in remembrance of his blood, and we're having bread in remembrance of his body, but we're continuing to break bread together, to have meals together. And so when you have meals with other Christians, you should have meals with other Christians. And when you do it, think about communion. Think about, I'm I'm gathering around the table with other believers and we can share this unique fellowship, this unique love for one another because of our relationship with Christ and because of the commonality of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And so as a church... Let's gather together for meals often, not just this symbolic meal, but meals throughout the course of our week. We're all going to eat. Might as well try to eat with other people as often as you can. And also, I would say, because our commonality is Christ and the Holy Spirit and not skin color, not nationality, not age, not where you're from, our commonality is Jesus, 
press against the drift towards affinity and press against the drift towards generational hanging out, press against the, 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 the drift towards cultural affinity and really press into we are united in Christ. And so that means make real efforts to have meals with people that aren't like you, like young families with young families only. That's just natural. Or college students with college students only. Or singles with singles only. Or olders with olders and youngers. Let's, let's mix it up around the commonality of Christ. It's a beautiful thing that we get to do. Titus chapter 2 makes it clear that older women should seek out younger women. It says for the ladies that, that you should teach the younger ones how to love their husbands, how to mother their, their children, how to manage their home. You've got the experience, older ladies. And so share that with people. Even if you say, my life wasn't really great in that regard, share what not to do, but share. God calls us to that. For the men, it says, older men, teach those who are younger how to be self-controlled. How appropriate is that in our culture today? That men just kind of do whatever feels good and marriages fall apart like crazy? If you're older, teach to the younger what commitment actually looks like and how to be self-controlled and how to rein in your passion and your lust and be a godly man. And this kind of relationship can't happen if we just say amen and run out the doors and see you again next Sunday. We have to press into letting communion extend beyond these doors and into our homes. And so I would encourage you, step up and do it in that regard. I'd also encourage you, when you're together, talk beyond just what's happening with the Patriots. Talk beyond just the weather. Talk beyond just work. But let's initiate and talk about the Lord and have real, rich, meaningful communion with each other because of what Jesus has done. He restores relationships. Right? Our relationships get broken because of sin. If you look back in Genesis, the very beginning there, when they ate of the forbidden fruit, what starts to happen with this beautiful marriage? They start to blame each other. Well, the woman you gave me. Right? And sin destroys relationship. But because of what Jesus has done, we can be reunited in our relationships. And so let's enjoy that fellowship together. I think it's also important to think about the forgiveness of sin that comes because of the blood of Jesus in correlation with that very first meal. You think about that very first meal with Adam and Eve, and what did they do when they ate of the fruit? They immediately realized their nakedness. It says they were naked and they were not ashamed. And then when they eat, they realize their nakedness, and in their shame, they cover themselves up with what? They cover themselves up with fig leaves. What happens with fig leaves? They wither, and so that's, it's like your outfit just gets smaller and smaller until you're exposed again. And so what does God do when he finds them? Does he start shaming them? No, what we see God do is we see he covers them with animal skins. What had to happen for them to be covered with animal skins? An animal had to die. Blood had to be shed. Do you see the symbolism there? That blood was shed to cover their shame, and God sheds the blood of his son Jesus to cover our shame. And so that wine represents the blood of Christ that was shed. And God always has required blood to be shed to cover shame. But now, once and for all, Jesus has taken upon that final death. He was the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we partake 
of these elements together. 1 Corinthians 11 will also point out, this is important, that for, for Christians, we have trusted in this work of Jesus upon the cross. And so, coming together to think about what Jesus has done for us when we do this, as often as we do this, is a great opportunity for us to examine ourselves. That whenever we do this, we come together and we examine ourselves. We do business with the Lord, so to speak. We confess sin if we need to. We remember what he's done. If we come and say, thank you for your blood, but then we go on and just ignore our sin in our lives, wouldn't that be terrible? Paul says, do we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Don't abuse the grace of God. Right? He goes on in 1 Corinthians 11, and he says that if we were to do this and just continue to partake of communion and take it lightly, he says, it's hypocrisy. And because of that, some Christians are even sick. And because of that, some even have died. He said it, not me. That is It's right there in the scriptures. Not that all sickness is direct judgment of God for a particular sin in your life, because, I mean, everyone dies. But we need to check our hearts. We need to take this very seriously. Never take communion lightly. And then, after we have checked our hearts, examined ourselves, confessed sin together, we do this, and we do it proclaiming the Lord's death, it says, until he comes. So what we're doing every time we partake of communion is we are proclaiming, Jesus died for me. I trust Jesus. I follow Jesus. And when? Until he comes. So I'm anticipating his coming again where I can have that fourth and final cup with him. I can drink of the vine with him again. But until then, communion. Until then, we partake of communion. We remember, we look back. We look ahead and proclaim and await this second coming. This brings us to meal number five, the last one. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb. You may or may not be familiar with this, but Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, says that we as believers are invited to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And who is the Lamb? Jesus is the Lamb. He's the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. He's the perfect and the final lamb. And who is he marrying? He's marrying his bride, the church. We are the bride of Christ, and we will enjoy that meal with him. It will be this great wedding reception. It will be this great banquet. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 says, on that mountain, it will be a great feast. We will have uh, great cuts of meat. We got some steak lovers in here. Great cuts of meat. It says we will have choice aged Wine, choice aged wine, it's great to know. It's great to know that though human history began with a meal without God, it ends with a meal with God. It's a great picture that we have. And the effects of sin will be felt no more. And He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death will be no more. And it will be a beautiful day. And so we anticipate that day every time we partake of communion, that meal that we have with Him. That's the fifth meal, the wedding supper of the Lamb. But until then, communion, the Lord's table until He comes. And so we're about to enter into communion together as a church family. 
let's continue to be reminded of the depth and the riches of the meaning of the Lord's table, that it is reserved for Christians who have trusted in Jesus, who have taken time to examine themselves, to do some business over this meal with the Lord, who have received the forgiveness of sins from the perfect Lamb of God, whose blood was shed to take away the sin of the world, Jesus. Remember that his body was striped for you. It was beaten for you. It was crushed for you. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of of your sin. Think about the parallels between all the other meals that we talked about. Meals that have this meaning of, of fellowship where we come together as a family around the table. And we say, I'm with you as we partake of the food together. Meals that speak to hospitality. That Jesus did the work to set this table, didn't he? And he serves us by dying for us. Meals that speak to our equality. That no one is greater. We come around this table together, all dependent upon Jesus. Meals that say we are celebrating something. That Jesus died, but now he's alive, and that we're going to eat again with him someday. Depth and rich meaning, our communion. And don't forget that as we finish and we pray and we sing, that our communion extends out of this place into homes and restaurants and dorm rooms and apartments as we have fellowship with one another. Let me pray together. Father, we are so thankful for what Jesus has done. We are so thankful that this is so beautiful. It could not be staged how you have threaded biblical history, salvation history with meals. God, I pray that every time we partake of communion together, we would just understand the weight of what we're doing, that we would not take it lightly. It would not just be some ritual, some tradition, some sacrament where we think we're earning your favor. God, help us to do this because you commanded us to because you did it yourself, and because of all the depth of meaning and communion that we have with you in this moment. God, we come to thank you. We come to celebrate. We come as family. We come receiving your hospitality as you have served us. We come in equality and unity. We come doing business with you. Thank you that we can come to your table. We trust in your work. And God, I pray that right now, if there's anybody in this room who has never placed faith in Jesus alone and what he has done upon that cross with his perfect life, undeserved death, and then his resurrection for sin, God, I pray that they would today maybe even partake of communion for the very first time as a physical picture. I am trusting in Jesus. They're not taking it lightly. They're saying that they're coming to Jesus by coming to your table that you have set for them. They're receiving your grace. They're receiving your hospitality. Help them to take that step of faith today and become a Christian. We'll celebrate. We'll give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.